welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Arthur Metzler, the president and CEO of AMA Consulting Engineers, as my guest today in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Arthur Metzler founded AMA Consulting Engineers 21 years ago in 2000 in New York City, and over the years has built it into an industry leader for engineering firms. AMA has a national footprint with offices in New York City, New Jersey, Los Angeles, and Miami, with over 150 employees, including eight managing partners. Along with engineering services like mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection, they also provide IT, AV, and security design with TM Technology Partners, Design Build Services, which is AMA Design Build, and Commissioning and Building System Services, AMACXS. Uh, there's also an acoustic and lighting division. I'm going to get it all right. <laughs> uh, I met Arthur now about 12 years ago or so when working on a new TV broadcast building for Channel 6 in Philadelphia, WPVI. It was then that I discovered that they were and remain the industry leader in the design of broadcast, media, and production facilities, having a portfolio of over 250 such facilities. They do all sorts of other project types as well with awesome clients such as Avon, Etsy, Equinox, Italy, CNBC, ABC, HBO, Commvault, and so on. AMA was also ranked number 38 in 2020 Top 100 MEP Giants. Arthur is also one of the nicest and most humble people in our industry I've ever met. Artie, thank you for, for agreeing to be here on the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Christian, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. My first ever podcast, and that was a very nice welcome and did opening. I, did I get it all right? You got it right. All right, cool. Awesome. <laughs> there's a few There's a few add-ons in addition to the other related businesses, which we'll get to as, all we, right, perfect. as we go. That sounds good. Excellent. So let's get right into it. Uh, if you had to pick one thing... What annoys you about architects and why not? What annoys you about engineers too? That would be a difficult thing to pick one thing. And I, <laughs> and, and I think architects in general are a talented bunch. You have an extraordinary amount of responsibility. And I don't think you get paid well enough for that responsibility and the services you provide uh, to your clients. Um, I just think the one the one flaw might be the uh, lack of appreciation maybe for the other project consultants and understanding that our job and others is difficult as well. Mm -hmm. So doing a better job of understanding the sensitivities of the other consultants, particularly engineering firms, um, and being able to integrate that into the project 
uh, more seamlessly would be the probably the the biggest general criticism I would give, okay. which is not a major criticism. No, but it's very fair. More. I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think it goes to probably goes to training mm-hmm. um, on on your end and, and as well as our end. We we yeah. face the same we face the same lack of sensitivity as engineers to answer the second part of your question when it comes to appreciating architects and working and being a better supporter of you and your difficult role. I mean, yeah. We have a tendency to, as engineers, we go into this little uh, silo, which we spend most of our days in, <laughs> and it's hard to get out. And uh, you know, this is what we do, this is how we do it, and we don't always appreciate um, and give the proper level of attention to the architectural process. Yeah, yeah, so I, I would, it's interesting you brought up the fee, right, and the, the, the getting paid for what we do. And I, it's a tough, it's something I've actually always wanted to ask, you know, the, the engineer, um, you know, as a general rule, we always say that the engineer's fee is 50%. If we're talking like a commercial interiors project, it's 50% of our fee. Right. right? Um, but then you get things like now the interiors have become commoditized. Right. And, and I feel like architects just themselves are driving the price lower and lower because to get the to win the work, right? And especially post COVID, uh, you know, yes. this is kind of where we are. Um, so, you know, how does that work for you guys? I mean, if that's sort of the general rule of thumb, as our fee comes down, does your fee come down? Do you see that? How do you plan for that kind of thing? We're facing the same fee pressures that you are, mm-hmm. um, and and it, it, it's a trickle down effect, right? So it comes right right down right to us and it's it's not an easy uh, thing to balance as it is in, as it is for you not an easy thing to balance for for you either so when there's a lot of work and it's more discretionary it's a little <laughs> easier to be uh, to, to be picky and choosy um, yep. on some of the projects you take on when there's when there's less work like you said coming out of covid it's a little softer mm-hmm. um, it's harder to be to pick and choose. So you really have to be able to uh, manage the project to the fee that you're able to get. Right. So that's goes back to another item of training, but training on the business side mm. versus the technical side and trying to train our people to understand. And they're all well intended. And again, the way we work, it's kind of we know one way to work and mm-hmm. it's the right way to work. And it's to get the job done 110 percent. And that's what we've always taught our people. It doesn't matter what the fee is. And it th- you just give that same level of effort. You do 110 percent design, administration, support. The client's always right. But it's a little harder when the fees are extraordinarily challenged to maintain that philosophy and keep it going. And yeah. if you still want to run a profitable organization and you still want to share the profits at the end of the year with your employees, which are your only assets. Right. So um, so it's it's difficult, but not impossible. Yeah. Um, but it, it is it does bring levels of frustration into the into your day to day life that you prefer not to deal with. I agree. I think that architects in, in particular and designers. Right. I mean, we you know, we we do what we have to do to win the job in terms of our cost structure. And then we do the exact same thing. It's almost like on day one, we say, well, kind of doesn't matter what the fee was. We, you know, the client wants this. Everyone gets so excited to deliver what the client wants or has these great ideas and these these wonderful ideas or materials or whatever it might be. We're going to create this amazing space and our fee kind of goes into the toilet immediately. 
And it's almost like for the love of the <laughs> of the project, right? And for the love of the design. And end up, we end up taking it out on the, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've blamed, not blamed the engineer, but said, well, you know, 50% of your budget you don't even see because it's all behind the walls and the, you know, yeah, it's in yeah. the air conditioning, it's in the walls, it's in the plumbing, <laughs> you know, don't take out my really nice countertop, you know, that kind of thing. So. <laughs> but there's truth in that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard to reconcile the truth sometimes, <laughs> whatever it is. There's no, there's no way around it. And when you get into some of the media projects that we do, sometimes it's even more than 50 yeah. cents on the dollar that goes towards the, uh, the engineering systems, the MEP system. So, uh, you know, it's even more frustrating for you, I'm sure, when you're <laughs> saying, wait a second, how is this working? Um, yeah. So in your opinion, I guess, what, what do architects do well and what do they not do so well, you know, um, in, the, in, the, in the process? Well, considering the the overall system is a bit flawed, I think by and large, architects, uh, majority of architects do most things well. Mm-hmm. I really believe that because you got to remember the the baseline. We just if you if you're expecting perfection, we all suck, right? right? <laughs> but if you're expecting um, a high level of performance in a in a in a flawed system, um, and I say that you know, an endearing manner, a flawed system. It's just, there's so many hands that touch, there's so many subspecialties now that have gotten involved in a project that it's really difficult to manage, nearly impossible to manage. Like the, 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 the critical mass and the momentum kind of just gets a project there, but, but along the way, there's, um, there's a lot of things that could be done better. So by and large, I think architects do a, a very good job overall. Um, and when, when you say, what could they do better? I think the overall, go back to my overall level of, of coordination and sensitivity towards, uh, the engineering consultant, mm-hmm. particularly, particularly MEP, but, but all disciplines, right, low voltage lighting, acoustics, just understanding what the requirements are along the way as you start a project like you said when you when your team gets in the room and they're all excited and they get going it's like it's all about architecture <laughs> and i wish you probably wish the same about us when we got in the room for the first meeting it wouldn't be all about engineering i figured i wish we would find a place that to, to meet more in the middle is that what you mean by flawed system yeah okay i do but i think the more we work with certain firms yeah yours being one of them does it better than most but from a design standpoint from a business standpoint um, that the, the, the flaws become less and you, yeah. and you, and you understand each other's flaws and you're able to be a little predictive in those flaws and, yeah. and, and better work, better, um, have the forethought to go into it and be, a, be able to just better work with someone like AMA, yeah. um, and Mancini Duffy, which, we, and we, we are doing more and more work together over the years as we get to know each other better. Absolutely. Yeah. So it does get easier, um. And the flaws become well. It's funny more tolerable. When, when you walked in, we were talking about our office moving, and one of the first things you said to me was, "Sorry, you need those mechanical rooms in the middle of your <laughs> office," which is kind of funny, right? Exactly, because <laughs> we saw that. Oh, a lovely plan, yeah. I said, yeah. Where are we getting the HVACs from? Yeah, so I, said, I think they're putting something out on the roof setback. I'm like. Setback is about two feet deep. Yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> I can barely fit on that setback, <laughs> let alone a piece of mechanical it's just equipment. Funny. Even the architect his own space doesn't want to deal with the uh, the mechanical constraints. You know, it's, exactly. Uh, it's kind of funny, right? So how, how can architects in general help engineers do a better job? Kind of a similar question, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a very similar question. Um, 
I think it goes back to training. If you if you do a better job of training your people, and I don't know, you know, it's easier said than done to have some sort of formal training process, particularly for firms our size, yeah, that uh, may not be able to afford that formal training process. But somehow, if you would be better train your people, um, they would be the process would flow a little simpler because there would be that ability to understand better what we're dealing with, the challenges we're dealing with. You know, I like to say air conditioning hasn't changed much in 50 <laughs> years, right? Air and water. No one's figured out a way to compress it any greater <laughs> than it is today. So you get these big ducks and you get big pieces of equipment. And and in some cases, they're getting bigger versus smaller. You say, wait a second, it's, you know, it's 2021. Shouldn't this stuff get smaller? <laughs> no, nah, it's getting bigger. So... Um, so the we understand the frustration you have, um, and I think if you would just you, I say you, labeling the architectural yeah. profession as you, if you would just um, train, have a better understanding of the challenges we face, I think that would make your firm, your industry, a better industry overall. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So our audience would love to get to know you better. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? I grew up in the small town of Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, in southern Bergen County. <laughs> um, when people say that, they say, where's that? I like to say, you ever hear of Hackensack? Yeah. Most people have heard of Hackensack. So it's due south of Hackensack. Okay. And I had um, three older sisters in my life. Still do. Okay. A, uh, one of them who runs our marketing department. Oh, nice. Sister Catherine. Um, all still local to New Jersey. And my parents, both still alive, 91, 85. Oh, wow. Uh, my dad was a sole proprietor. He was a title searcher. Um, so when you went to buy a title insurance policy for your home, he was the guy the title insurance company would hire to actually go to the county courthouse, open up the big sling, the big uh, <laughs> property title books and look for defects uh, in, in property over the lifetime of that property. So oh, interesting. Sole practitioner, hard worker, uh, retired when he was 82, um, voracious reader, and he still uh, loves to watch television. <laughs> um, and my mom is, uh, she was a homemaker and she also um, went to FIT, I think for maybe two years. Okay. So she knew how to, um, she was a seamstress effectively. So she would make a lot of our clothes when we were growing up. Okay. Which is a problem when you have three older sisters and you're buying in a batch. So <laughs> all of a sudden I have many photos of myself dressed looking very much like a female. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that, especially today. It's all it's all good. Exactly. It's all accepted. <laughs> so what made you want to become an engineer? Is it something you always wanted? No. <laughs> I went to high school. I went to Hasbro Heights High School. Um, so neither of my parents graduated college. Okay. So college was an important thing for us, but it wasn't the end all be all like it is for our kids today. Yeah. So, um, so high school, I did pretty well in high school. And then they said, hey, you're good at math and science. You should be an engineer. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I decided to become an engineer. And I went to Villanova yep. for my undergraduate uh, engineering and it's even a funnier story how I got to Villanova because since college wasn't that much of a priority, I was destined to go to Rutgers. That's, okay. that's, that was going to be my career path. And my oldest friend, still my oldest friend, 
um, who's a spine surgeon. We were sitting in his kitchen one day, which we did many times, and he would read the Daily News, and I would read the New York Post after high school, <laughs> after class that day. And he said, hey, you know, um, he was a smart kid. He was looking at you know, spine uh, surgeon, good yeah. schools. So he said, I have this extra application here, and uh, you, you should fill it out. You, you might like it. And I said, where, where's that? He said, Villanova. And I said, wow, where's that? <laughs> he said, it's right outside of Philadelphia. What do you mean? You don't know where Villanova is? I said, no, I have no idea. So I opened up the application, sat there at the kitchen table, filled it out, went home. I said, Dad, I want to apply to Villanova. He said, where's that? And I, <laughs> and I said, but it's 50 bucks. He said, 50 bucks? Can't afford the $50 application fee. And I said, oh, come on, Dad. I think we should. I So long story short, I applied. I was accepted. Uh, went down to visit the school, and somehow we figured out a way to wow. afford uh, Villanova. So went there from 1982 to 1986. Okay. And then I, I know you also went to law school. We'll cover that in a second. But with, yes. with Villanova, so probably pretty pivotal, you know, because I, I feel like there's a lot of people in our industry that went to Villanova. There are. More than I thought. More than yeah. I ever knew. Um, I had my head down for so many years building the business that it was never a master plan when it came to recruiting. Mm -hmm. But maybe 10 years ago, I started to get a little more strategic in our recruiting. And we at one point we had, you know, about a out of about 100 employees, we had about 14 that went to Villanova. So and I was I'm very proud of that fact that yeah. uh, we were able to actually get a recruiting process going through Villanova. And while the firm has grown, our percentage is about this is, is, is less. We still have about, uh, I guess, somewhere between 13, 14 people that, that went to Villanova. So okay. um, I still or I, I should say I still I started to support the university later in life. OK. When I had a little bit more discretionary time <laughs> on my hands. Uh, my son is there now as a freshman yeah. um, in the business school, not the engineering school. Um, but uh, but we we do. We, we actively recruit from Villanova and we find that uh, we rarely get a lemon. Okay. We get a lot of good kids that come out of Villanova. Good, practical, hardworking kids that come from solid backgrounds and upbringings and a nice diverse group. And we're, and we're thrilled. So the engineering education is, I think it's a bit different than architecture. I could be wrong. I don't know all that much about it, but I can say my, my nephew uh, is going to school for engineering, right? At Texas A&M. Eventually, I'm going to ask you to give him an internship or something, right? So, <laughs> we'll consider it. Um, <clears throat> he, you know, I was saying to him, you know, well, what, what engineering are you doing? I only know engineering from like my perspective, right? It's MEP, civil, structural. I mean, I know there's other engineers out there, aerospace and all that stuff. But, you know, and he said, well, I'm, I'm just studying engineering. And I said, well, what does that mean? Do you, is there a concentration in something? He said, well, no, not really. I haven't really decided yet what I want to do. So how, do, how does that work? How is the, the education? Because you go to architecture school, you go to become an architect. I mean, that's pretty much it. You may become other things afterward, but you're learning specifically to be an architect. How does engineering work? Uh, it's not that broad of a choice. Um, so when I was in engineering school, it was, <laughs> you had a choice. You were either mechanic, you had, you had to select after your first year. Oh, okay. Elect. So it was mechanical, electrical, civil, or chemical. Those okay. were the four choices that I had. Um, people would say, 
we talk, you know, my friends at school, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it's, they'd say, oh, mechanical. It's the, got the, the broadest platform for you to do anything you want going forward after college. Okay. So at the time I agree with, I still do. And I chose mechanical. Um, and, and I do think it has a broad platform, maybe not as broad as I thought it was back then. Cause as you get a little older in life, you realize you can do pretty much anything with it, with any degree. Right. Um, but, uh, but the, the electrical and the chemical and the civil a little more specialized than each of what they, they, they mean just by definition. Yeah. But mechanical is so broad, right? Oh, so one of my friends went to work for GE. Another one went to work for Pratt & Whitney. Another one went to work for Otis Elevator. Another mm-hmm. one went to work for, um, um, uh, at the time, uh, a factory. I, f- I forget the name of the company. It's a large, large company. So, okay. so you, there's, there's different <clears throat> things you can do. And then, and then there was me who went into the, the MEP business. <laughs> so you can do anything. <laughs> so before we get to AMA, so you end up going to law school at New York Law? Yes, I did. Are you a lawyer? So I am. I, I graduated, I graduated law school. So bit of a long story yeah, this podcast might happened. not be long enough so <laughs> uh i went to work so i came out of villanova and i went to work for who uh was and is my brother-in-law um who has a business here in new york city his name is thomas polisi consulting engineers that was the name of the business so when i when i was going through school he hired me to work summers so first summer i drove the company van the next summer, I got promoted to work in the uh, the blueprint room when blueprints were still br- blueprints, by yeah. the way, and and working in an un- a non ventilated room yeah. with the with the ammonia yeah. and, oh, yeah. and running well. the sheets. I had yes, open that the was a thrill. Um, <laughs> so I went to work uh, for my brother in law at the time in 1987 full time after I graduated, and had a, had a good five years. Learned a tremendous amount uh, from him. One of the best engineers I ever met. Um, I, I, I think I'd say the best engineer I ever met in terms of understanding all the disciplines. So he was an expert in mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection. And that's how I learned. He, he, he made sure you knew all the disciplines. You weren't just a mechanical engineer. Okay. So we would work on projects and we would design all the trades. Um, so, but along the way, I questioned whether I, you know, I was new to the business. Is this really what I wanted to do for my whole life? It's not very sexy, the, 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 the <laughs> professions, particularly the MEP profession. <laughs> so I said, maybe I should go back to school. And um, so I said, what would I want to do if I wasn't an engineer? I said, I think I would want to be a patent attorney. That's what I want to do. So I applied, got into law school and realized I really couldn't afford law school. Who was I kidding? So um, I ended up going to school at nights. Uh, so I went to the evening division of New York Law School downtown, okay. and I found my way after four years to a, to a diploma. I nice. got my degree, uh, continued to work the entire time, um, ended up leaving my brother-in-law, in, or I should say we, I was terminated. Oh, truth, really? truth be told, I was terminated. My brother-in-law wow. terminated me. Another long story. <laughs> um, so that was when I went to work uh for Edwards and Zuck in 1992. So I, I, I did two years of law school when I was w- working for Polisi. I did another two years of law school um, when I was working for Edwards and Zuck. So I finished in 94. They were kind enough to give me, I think, three weeks off uh, so I can study for the bar exam. Wow. So I found the bar exam easier than the PE exam. Interesting. Uh, and uh, and so I passed it. And But I realized that 
late late in law school, by, by my fourth year, I said, wow, I have so much invested now in the engineering world. I like what I do. I start, I'm starting to see the, the playing field of engineering and the business of engineering. So I said, I don't think I'm ever going to practice law. And in fact, I never did. But I felt it was important to to, to get the license and pass, pass the bar exam. Yeah, you so, made the effort. It might as well complete yeah. the thought. But I'm so, sure, and I'm sure it's come back to help. It has. Uh, you know, as as officially, I'm 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 retired from law, um, <laughs> but the well, what it taught me to do, which I did not learn well growing up, was it taught me how to to read critically, more so how to write well, mm-hmm. which is very difficult if you're an engineer mm-hmm. and, um, and an architect. Yes. Yep. And speak. It yeah. taught me I was I was a very shy kid growing up. And uh, you could ask my sisters. They thought they would if they saw me sitting here, they would be very surprised that I'm actually <laughs> sitting here. Um, not so much here, just in my day to day life and running yeah. an organization. Um, but law school really forced me to get to the front of the room and have to present whatever argument I was uh, arguing that day and uh, nerve wracking, but built built my confidence and uh, really was the springboard uh, to allow me to start my own business. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So you work at Edwards and Zuck. And then what what makes you decide you're going to go out on your own? I got fired again. <laughs> <laughs> that's another true story. <laughs> and that's even a longer story. Um, <laughs> but uh, you probably know a little bit about that story. They were trying to sell the firm. They ultimately did. They ultimately did. <laughs> years and years um, later. Years but. and years later. <laughs> it took a while. Um, but so uh, I was one of the junior shareholders there at the time, and I loved working there. I loved the principles of the organization. I loved the people in the organization. I really had no plan on leaving. But the terms that were given to me of the transaction, sale transaction, were, I felt, not favorable to me as, well, as the youngest principal in the organization and someone I thought was going to be the, the leader of the firm in the next few years. And I was already running the New York office at that time. Wow. So... After many months of going back and forth, I finally said, you know, I really don't want to participate in this transaction. It wasn't uh, it was it was a pretty much an investor purchase. Um, and there was a lot of unknowns back then about what that would even mean. So I said, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they effectively paid me to leave. Um, they, they agreed with me that I was um, dispensable. Okay. And um, they said, isn't you know what? take your deferred compensation dollars you can leave but before you go please stay not please you must stay until the sale transacts Um, and this was late in 1999 so i said okay so i agreed and i did i stayed for several months while they were going through the process and then they did announce to the firm that they were selling the firm and that uh i was leaving so there was a lot of confusion and people were wondering, like, why, why is the guy running the New York office leaving the firm? So they asked me to leave at that time. Okay. So it was <laughs> December of 99. So it's 20 years later. I guess we can talk about this now. So yeah. statute of limitations has expired. Definitely. Uh, You're the lawyer. <laughs> so, so in the three months that I had leading up to knowing I was leaving, I said, well, what is my next step going to be? So I started to put out feelers about, hey, if I started my own business, you know, what, what, what would you think? So I went to, at the time, who were four core clients that I worked with within Edwards and Zuck. Mm-hmm. It was NBC Universal, it was MTV Networks, 
There's AXA Financial, which is now the Equitable, and SJP Properties. And I approached them all, and I got very favorable indicators that they would work with me if I started my own business. But I had to have a team with me. You know, and and yeah. it's not just me, just like you. It's not just you here. Yeah, it's a good sure. team of people. So we were young, dumb and stupid. We had all three going for us. <laughs> so I said, you know, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the guy to, to go, and I'm going to convince some of the younger who are now my partners uh, to to join me shortly after I start this business. So I left December 15th of 1999. January 15th, I was located in a new office on West 40th Street um, with a handshake deal with a landlord because I couldn't sign the lease because I was technically still a shareholder of Edwards and Zook. Okay. So I said, okay, I can't sign a lease, but let me use the space now. Going back 20 years, he said, <laughs> okay, go ahead. There's a guy in the building who says you're a good guy. You're going to be successful. You just can, like you today, can. Yeah. So he gave us, you know, 6,000 square feet of loft space and it had nothing. It had lock on the door. He said, do what you want. Put lights in, string lights, rent tables, chairs, whatever you need, you know, do what you need to do to get your business going. So, so that's what we did. So, so we got the business going immediately. But the problem is the work. It wasn't a problem. It was good, but the work came immediately. It actually oh, wow. almost preceded the start of the firm. So when I told people what was happening, they said, oh, we have a project starting. We'd rather you do it in the new firm than the old firm. So there was a lot of crossover. So the long story short, by April of 2000, we had 35 employees, wow. all who had worked at Edwards and Zook and came to join us. So right around the same time, the Edwards and Zook sale fell apart because they found out that this young, dispensable 3% shareholder oh, no. is, is taking all these people with him to start his own business. What's going on? So the sale fell apart. We were quickly sued for gonna say, $32 million dollars, oh, um, wow. as the reason the sale failed. Um, and there was all kinds of you know claims of breach of fiduciary responsibility. There was um, stealing clients, stealing people, none of which were true, none of which were provable, even if they were true, but they weren't true. <laughs> and uh, But we went through a protracted lawsuit for about four months. First, there was an attempt to get an injunctive order against us that failed. So once that once we once we cleared that hurdle, I knew we were going to be OK. But then a civil lawsuit proceeded for another few months. And then that just fizzled out and ended because there were no there were no provable damages. The damages yeah. were, were of their own making. Um, so so by July, August of 2000, we had about 60 employees because Tom Morley, my partner on the low voltage side, TM Technology Partners, right. he decided sometime in early 2000 that he said, "Not, nah, I don't want to be here either. You guys are you're crazy. You let like the young the, the, the young superstar leave and start his own business. I'm going to go with him." So Tom, who was the president of Arizona Communications at the time, he said, "I'm going to," and he and he controlled enough votes to be able to actually take the company, move it, change the name. And just call it TN Technology Partners and 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 co-locate with with AMA. So that's how we started. Wow! It was quite a year in the in the new millennium. Started off in a big way for that is for us. Huge! That's unbelievable. Yeah. So what what what's been your approach to getting clients? And I mean, you're you're one of the primary rainmakers there. Yeah. And you built the business at the time. How did you go about doing that? We we had the seller doer model mm -hmm. and and and. To a certain extent, we still do. 
Yeah. Um, but that's how we became successful. And that's how hopefully we continue to be successful. But to me, growing up in the in the you know what I learned from my brother-in-law back in the in the Polisi days, and what I took the best I could from Edwards and Zook, and tried to leave the bed behind, which was just client service, client service, client service, and it will be get you the next project. Yeah. And not only the client, but the team around you, right? So we get hired by NBC Universal. Oh, but they work with a lot of different architects, and they work with a lot of different contractors. So get to know those teams. Who do you want to work with? I used to say I'd start a project sit at the kickoff meeting, look around the table and say, who do I want to work with again at this table outside of NBC and really try and develop relationships based on that mentality. Right. So that's really the key to our success over the years has been just participating in the projects. We don't do heavy marketing historically. We're mm -hmm. trying to do a better job of it now. <laughs> We're organizing a marketing department for the first time and getting outside resources. So you'll be seeing some good stuff from us coming right, in the cool. very near future. Um, but um, but that was never a priority for us. It was, you know, don't worry, the work will come. Just do a great job each and every time. Big, no matter what size the project is, big or small. And and it worked. And we and I taught it to in my senior leadership, mm -hmm. you know, guys you know very well, Conrad yeah. Chang, David Ford, Chris Jones, Bobby Robinson, you know, yeah. Maureen Doyle at the time before she retired. <laughs> Um, Jim Brandt um, and others have joined since then. But, you know, that core group um, that we've stayed together, you know, appreciating the value of each other and saying, listen, we're all imperfect in our own way, but we're a good team together. Yep. And let's make this work. So yeah. that's the key. And so then how did the broadcast come about, you know, doing all the broadcast and media work? That goes back to... Uh, 1987 believe it or not so when okay. i started to work for my brother-in-law um he was doing work for nbc universal and he would just say pretty much every day go to nbc that's your that's you know we have this project that project that project and they were mostly small projects at the time but it was and it was a 30 rockefeller plaza and and it was just a lot of a lot of complexity to the building so he would send me up there every day so for almost five years, I would go there almost every day and spend the better majority of my day there. I was serving, I was attending meetings, punch listing, whatever it is. That's what I, but getting to know people. Yeah. And I would get a lot of drive-by business. I called it walk-by business because I would go to the facilities floor and someone would say, oh, Artie, 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 wait, wait, I have a new project for you. Oh. So, um, so I developed a specialty working back in 1987 through 1992 doing the media work. Yeah. And it was unbeknownst to me because it wasn't very strategic. I was just, that's what I was assigned to do. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, it's kind of especially not a lot of people do it. Yeah. So when I went to Edwards and Zook and I continued some of the relationships that I had with Polisi, much to the, the chagrin of Polisi, which caused a long-term pause in our brother, our family relationship, which we, which we mended okay, years good, later. Good. I was going to ask you um, about that. No, yeah, we mended it. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't easy. Um, but I did, uh, I did uh, really, you, the NBC relationship was really the springboard of um, my success at Edwards and Zook okay. and subsequent success at AMA because they, yeah. were, they were and are one of our biggest clients. Big they have clients, been for yeah. 21 years. Yeah. So a big part of the organization and, and I'm very grateful. And as you, as you see, some of the people I grew up with start to retire. I say, oh, my goodness. 
my time will come soon. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you, you got you got a while for that. But, but I took what I learned at NBC over the years, and I applied it. And I realized it is a specialty. Not a lot of people do it. And the NBC fraternity is huge out there that has left and gone on to other media clients. Yeah. So if you look at many of our media clients, some of them, most of them have all have somehow cycled through uh, the NBC Universal <laughs> network. So, you know, people who work with it at CBS and people who work with Disney, ABC and yeah. Warner Media yeah. and HBO, you know, and NFL Media. You know, we just finished a project in L.A. and it's just uh, it's tremendous how the uh the, the the smallness of the world but um how big it how big it is that's awesome what, yeah. are, what are some of your favorite broadcast projects you've worked on we've, we've had a lot of good ones i will say one that's just super recent because it literally just finished it's the nfl media headquarters in in la cool um and huge project 300 plus thousand square feet almost a hundred thousand square feet of production space wow it was our first project i think our first project that was ever highlighted on entertainment tonight oh cool which was i'll send you a clip it's just <laughs> on there i think two nights ago someone sent it to me um so that that's a special project for us um it's really extraordinary the complexity the amount of technology that's there the number of studios the size of the studios uh the football field outside directly next to sofi stadium um, cool. in in a new corn shell building but other projects that stand out to me um the telemundo headquarters which was six hundred thousand square feet which was a you know a five-year project um from 2013 to in 2018 miami? in miami okay it's a fantastic project eight megawatts of generator four thousand tons of refrigeration <laughs> just a super nice project with nice people um we the warner media project yeah. over at hudson yards was tremendous um, one of our, one of our best ever, certainly size wise, a million and a half square feet of wow. which I think 400,000 was production. Um, you know, and then you have some more marquee projects like, you know, the late night with Jimmy Fallon, uh, was a great project. Um, the Brokaw news center that we've done that we did and finished mm -hmm. in like 15 in, uh, in LA on the universal city campus. So there are a lot of good name projects and for us to recruit. How are you going to recruit in the MEP world? It's such a non-sexy business. <laughs> but when I show people pictures of the projects we work on, yeah. they say, oh, my God, you work on such great stuff. And I try and say, yeah, don't worry. We're, we're way behind those scenes. <laughs> but they look good. <laughs> so they, they are a help for recruiting. But isn't it fascinating? I mean, you know this. You've met a lot of pretty amazing people along the way and, and probably very high up in, in these organizations. And you have direct access to them and they care about their product, yeah. their project. They want to know that it's going to be comfortable in there or, or as the architect, you know. I've said this before, you know, I've presented to Bob Iger before on those projects that we worked on, yeah. right? And and it was just another presentation, even though it was for Bob Iger. You know? <laughs> but, but we still had to get all the stuff done. It was the same thing. You yeah. know? It's just, it's, it's fascinating and, what you meet in the industry. And you don't have a lot of time to make that presentation exactly. because of the limited time they have for you. So it forces you, and you do it better than most, Christian, crisp, concise, Get your point across yep. and, and don't ramble on because you lose the audience yep, you know, very exactly. quickly, that type of audience. Yeah. So, um, you know, with your style, you um, no surprise you're sitting where you're sitting, no, thank given you. your style. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have predicted this exact seat, but I when I first met you, I said, oh, this this kid's going somewhere. You oh, can tell. Funny. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago we worked on that project yeah. together. So Yeah, I met you a little project. before PVI. Like I met, but but PVIs, we, were, we, yeah, we really okay. got to know each yeah, other. Yeah, that's what I figured.
Um, so how, how has the profession changed for you over the last 30 years and the generational differences that you see now? Technology clearly um, is changing the profession. I, I would say not nearly as much as I'd like it to. I think mm -hmm. somehow we have the better leverage technology and, and I don't have the answer. I'm just, I think just technology needs to be a better part of. And when I say our solution, our collective solution, yeah. but particularly when it comes to MEP, people love to talk about Revit and Revit and Revit is great, except it's almost like Revit has a, not forgotten about, that would be a dramatization, but has, has failed to pay as much attention to the MEP portions of Revit as they have to architectural and structural. Yeah. So it's not the panacea that we thought it would be or as quickly as we thought it would be. We had a five years ago, we said, oh, we're going to be 100% Revit in five years. You know, I, I hope we get there someday, but I feel like we're at a, like a 50%. It's 100% of our new construction is Revit. Sure. A lot of our interior, you know, workplace or infrastructure type projects uh, are not Yeah. Uh, for various reasons. One is it's a little unwieldy for certain projects. Two is there's many, uh, some smaller architects that we work with that we'll never, we'll never embrace Revit. Yeah. Um, but even I used to, I used to get really annoyed with MEP engineers that didn't use Revit, right? And, yeah. or they'd say, oh, we, we use it only for mechanical. And then as I kind of moved through it, I thought, well, you know what? I, I kind of get why they don't use it. It doesn't, you yeah. know, and now I, I'm like the dinosaur now. So <laughs> I, I get why you could do something faster in another program. And, but, but at, with the advent or with, with the, with the younger kids, um, I don't don't want to sound old, older, <laughs> but listen, the young college graduates, they come in, they, they learn they, and they're much more technology savvy. So for them to learn on Revit uh, as a platform is much more natural than for us to learn on, which we did on AutoCAD midstream after drafting with E2 led for <laughs> the first eight years of my career. Yeah. So, um, so I do think it'll start to accelerate. As the as the uh, as the generations generation evolves, yeah, um, and I think that's where the biggest bang will be in terms of the future, in terms of better coordinating and better designing and better building a project. Yeah, so I we're mean, on our way. Yeah, we are clearly. We are. And and one of the, one of our initiatives here is to ultimately deliver the three D model as the construction documents. Right. And, you know, we're, we're trying to work through all those. There's a lot of kinks to that, right? It's easy to say it makes a lot of sense. But the reality of truly modeling every wire, every receptacle, every everything, it's, yeah. a, it's a lot of work. I and mean, making every light fixture smart and every receptacle smart and you yeah. plugging in the wattages of each fixture so we yeah. can really do our job properly. And, oh, you're not going to do that because you have a lighting consultant. Well, the lighting consultant doesn't work in Revit. <laughs> oh, that's a problem. And, and yep. all these media projects we work on where the, the systems integrator yep. says we're going to produce drawings, but they're not in Revit. And then most of your brethren in the architecture world say, well, we're not taking the integration drawings and putting them in Revit. Yeah. You guys do it yourself. And I said, well, that's kind of backwards because <laughs> you need to know where everything is. And, yeah. and, and it becomes uh, an argument on every project. So, so again, Revit sounds great. It is great, but it's got to be greater yeah, um, it's to, to, to serve our industry uh, better as a whole. Totally agree. How has, um, how has COVID affected your business? And, and is there, are there certain sectors that are more affected than others? Are there others that are, you know, increasing? We were impacted um, 
to the extent uh, it, it did impact our business mm-hmm. um, from a percentage basis. Uh, 2020, we were probably down on a whole 15%. Okay. Um, our design business was did not make up the entirety. It was probably more, down more towards 20%. Um, our design build business was actually up, okay. which I think was a pretty common theme in 2020 where design firms... If you weren't building something, if you as a client weren't building something, you stopped that project. If you right. were building something in construction, you kept, you kept it going. going. Yep. So our little piece of the world where we do our design build work, that kept rolling and, it, and kind of kept the firm in a healthier financial position in 2020. Um, I'd say across the board, our design business was impacted both on media projects, general workplace projects, residential projects. They we really, we saw an impact and I, I can't quantify one more than the other that okay. was impacted. But in 2020, we did make an acquisition. Um, we purchased the uh, triad consulting engineers uh, out of Mars Plains, New Jersey. Okay. Small electrical uh, focused engineering firm. They do a lot of high voltage work and solar work as well um, and specialty electrical work. So arc flash uh, type, you know, uh, t- t- testing. Um, so that was a nice tra- a transition f- transaction for us. And with that, Triad owned a company called Gavin Graham, and they're an electrical switchgear manufacturer. Okay. So with the Triad purchase, we said, yeah, we'll, we'll take on the Gavin Graham team as well. So we now are in the business of manufacturing switchgear, nice. which is something I know nothing about. Um, uh, we're learning as a whole. Conrad Chang is actually you know, running those two. They're, since they're both in New Jersey, Gavin Graham's in Union, Union New Jersey. So Conrad is really the point person on on running and integrating the, those two firms into our business. Nice. So it's been uh, exciting, challenging. It's the first time we've ever acquired a firm, and you know we've we've grown organically. So that was the first yeah. in non-organic uh, <laughs> acquisition, um, and we're learning a lot. and uh, And we look forward to hopefully we'll be you know several more acquisitions in the years ahead. Nice. We're we're bullish. Okay. And um, you know we we th- you. In order to, we, we strongly believe, in order to really thrive an organization, A, you have to be together in an office, at least some of the time. I agree. And you and I both share the same sentiment <laughs> there. Um, but you have to provide opportunity for people. So, and, and just more so than ever, the younger people are a little more impatient, want things a little quicker. So, you know, how do you do that? So, you, you have to evolve your firm. You have to grow your firm. You have to create opportunities for people because that's our responsibility as the, yep. as the senior leadership. And it's not easy to do and still maintain the quality and the and the, the, the sensitivity and the family type atmosphere that, that we've been able to create over yeah. the years. But it's our obligation. So we have to we have to figure out a way. So I totally agree. That's a lot of the initiatives we have here. And sometimes we go off on tangents that probably weren't the right thing. But a lot of things have the tangents we've gone off on have yielded something even more special than what we you know, what we anticipated. And people have bubbled up to the surface. Right. And said, no, I want to lead that. I, you know, that's, that's really my passion. That's what I want to do. Yeah. And that's beautiful, right? That's, that's the best thing you can do as a, that's it. leading we, an organization. Yeah. We, we're, so we're, as engineers, 
We're a bunch of control freaks as it is. <laughs> as, I, as I think you might be as well to a certain extent. 100%. So we're teaching ourselves, first of all, that we can't be as controlish as we have been over the past. We have to let go a little bit. Yeah. We have to let the next generation, uh, you know, take on initiatives, assignments, and just, and, and even, if, even if they trip and fall. Be there to pick them up as opposed to say, I'll do it for you instead. Right. right. So that's a that's a delicate balance that we're learning. It's a hard, yeah. You have to let go a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you but. definitely learn that. And you only learn that on the job. I mean, yeah. that is, yeah. Yeah, I've had, there are times where, you know, I was the designer, right? And so I would, I controlled every little bit and exactly what got presented. And now I'm not the designer. I, I have a hand in the design, but I'm not the designer. And it's hard sometimes not to jump across the table and go, no, 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 <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> this is the way we should do it. But you figure it out along the you way. You figure it out. And you realize it's a, it's an, it's a necessity if, you, if you're going to, I guess, if you're going to thrive your firm, it's an, it's an absolute necessity. Yeah. So one one more COVID question, because I've been curious about this. So, you know, with all of the air filtration and things that go on, you, you know, talking about indoor air quality, what's your feeling on that? Is it, is it theater? Does, does, does it really work? Can you really prevent, you know, COVID or, I mean, I know you can obviously prevent other things, but what, what truly is the, is the scoop? <laughs> so we've we've did a lot of study for many different people at the outset of COVID, and I think most engineers did. And we issued a white paper, and then we 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 evolved it probably six revisions along the way as we got more information uh, on COVID viruses itself and building systems. Um, at the end of the day, most. If uh, most never like to generalize and say all, but most um, opted to do nothing, do nothing, not only from an HVAC standpoint, but do nothing from an architectural standpoint either. Exactly. Right. And say, you know what? I'm not going to overreact for a virus that the feeling is it's a it's a one time thing. It's going to cycle through eventually and it'd be gone. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that's that's just what um, major developers, owners, operators, clients, all this stuff, bring it to the brink, understand what it costs, understand what the impact would be to the space, and then say, eh, I'm not going to spend a million dollars to do something that there's a marginal benefit to. It's more, it's almost more of a perception benefit than a real benefit. Mm-hmm. So to go back to your point, the, the original question was, Yes, there's some marginal benefit to some of the COVID mitigation measures, like UV light, mm-hmm. uh, better filtration. Um, but at but the end at the end of the process, which is hopefully nearing the end, most most in the industry have settled for a higher grade of air filtration. Right. Some have gone beyond, but they're in they're in the minority. Okay. But those that have gone beyond, they feel like have it's really been a focus on ultraviolet light. Okay. Yeah. So. So last couple of questions here, and um, you get to present with architects. Um, you know, sometimes when we go into pitches together, yes. when have you seen architects fall on their face in a presentation? What have they screwed up along the way? What advice do you have for us? <laughs> It's like the what's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, we are we are terrible presenters as engineers. <laughs> so when we walk into a presentation, we, and we don't do it very often um, with architects, um, 
So let's see. First of all, I'd say it's one, it's probably our biggest weakness is okay. actually making presentations. And it's one of our initiatives, 2022. Okay. Bring an outside third party and really work on our presentation, both our style, our content, um, our delivery. Okay. Um, so that being said, I come from a, a low bar to jump <laughs> over. So when I look at architectural presentations, I think most of them are like, oh, my God, this, that's so good. Look at all this stuff you present. <laughs> that's great. Um, I, but I think my the criticism as a business owner and being a little more mature, it's, mo- it's, it's usually not in the content. It's usually in the preparation mm-hmm. and the nervousness that comes with those presenting. Mm-hmm. So the days of you being nervous in a presentation are long gone myself as well um well that's not true i still at the beginning of our presentation (laughs) i got i was a little nervous at the beginning of this podcast as a matter of fact but um but it's really the 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 next generation that because a you have to prepare yeah and you're you're battling the day-to-day knife fight that you're in trying to get projects done and assignments done and they say oh wait wait now we all got to get in the room and prepare for this presentation it's a big job it's important so let's all get in here and who's going to say what and how we're going to say it and and that's where I feel like it fails the preparation leading up to it, and then making that connection yeah. uh, in the interview room yeah. is is difficult. Um, but I think architects in general, the few I've sat in recently, can do a better job of making making that connection and having the control person when you see the connection not being made steer the conversation yeah. away from that person. It's hard because you know, like here we have some outstanding technical people that want nothing to do with presenting to a client. And, you know, but you do want to present the whole team, right? And you want, you know, part of me wants to always in a a presentation like that, say to the client, trust me, this is the guy you want on your project. You know what I mean? This is the girl you want on your project. Not, you know, they're not going to wine and dine you right now, but (laughs) but it's going to work out. Trust me. (laughs) So (laughs) we have the same issue more so because of who we are. Right. Right. We have some of the best engineers we have or extraordinarily quiet and it's hard to say to someone no that's he's our best yeah, or she's our best right. you have no idea what we're putting in front of you right now and like, yeah I didn't say much he or she didn't say much no no they're the best <laughs> yep so you have to rely on the body of work and you have to hopefully the references check out and and yep you, and you and you kind of help that connection along yeah and then we'll have clients that'll say you know hey i want that person on my team from last time you know like you know i'll only work with you if i can have that person it's like oh my god they're on four other projects what am I gonna do? and our answer is no problem yes, of course we'll make that work yeah we'll of figure course it out. <laughs> that's what we have to do so kind of bringing it all back around if you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned what might you have changed along the way this is gonna sound corny but I have no regrets. Okay. I have no regrets. I am. Most people say that, by I'm the way. Thr- okay. Yeah. I'm thrilled with, <laughs> I'm thrilled with the career choice I made. I, lo- I love coming to work every day. Um, I really enjoy the profession. Most so I love the people I work with. That's right. Um, primarily in the organization, but also outside the organization. As we've gotten a little bit older and more successful, you can be, you, you say to yourself, I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm going to shy away from the people that aren't healthy for me, as, as you do as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, I really want to go towards the people that are that are nice people. And yeah. then and you were nice enough to say something about me. But at the beginning, but Christian, you, you know, your your humility and you're one of the nicest guys that I know. Oh, thank certainly you. in the architectural profession, you're patient, you're professional. So, you know, feelings mutual. 
um, but I I have I have no regrets. If I had That's to do awesome. it again, I would follow the same exact path because I always tell my kids. I said, listen, you go into a business and there's a lot of people in the business. Very difficult to 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 find that great a, a great level of success because the talent pool is large. I said. But you come into this business, the engineering, particularly the MEP engineering, which are not a lot of people go into because of its non-sexy nature. Mm. Your chances of achieving success are much greater. So part of our the level, the, the key to our success is being in a business where there, the competition isn't that strong. So I like to say I finished up a presentation once. We were interviewing for Lincoln Square Synagogue. I'll never forget it. And uh, and it was a committee. And they said to me, it's going back like 13 years ago. And they said at the end, kind of like this closing, they said, what, you know, why, why should we hire you? And, and and all along the way, they were complaining that other engineers they work with, that this wrong, that that wrong, that And I said, you should hire us because we're the best of a bad lot. <laughs> and, and the woman hysterically left and we got hired. And after the project started, she says to me, you want to know you got this job? That line. That line is how you got that job because you are the best of a bad lot. So that's my, that's my little uh, tagline I like to use once in a while. I love it. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I know that you know, this is a stretch for you. You don't necessarily do these kind of things. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. It's, uh, it was great to have you tell your story. And you're, you're an awesome dude. So, Christian, thank you very I much. Thanks it. for having me. I'm, I'm humbled that you asked me to be part of part of your podcast series. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Awesome. Thank you. You too. So to see and read more about uh, Arthur Metzler and AMA Consulting Engineers, uh, check out their website at amapc.com. And you can look for Arthur on LinkedIn and on his Instagram, which he said he's going to start going nuts on. Oh, I'm going to uh, get a big social media. At AMA Group um, on Instagram. So thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Christian. Yep. Appreciate it.